Are you facing a crisis in your life or business? It's time to steer yourself in the right direction through the real experiences, passion, and courage of our guests. We're taking the helm with your host, Lynn McLaughlin. Hello to you and welcome. I am back from the most amazing week on the East Coast of Canada where my oldest son, Shane, wed his fiance, Abby. It was such a beautiful day. I don't remember a time when my family was so connected, felt so much love, so much happiness. It really was so beautiful in so many ways. They're off in on their honeymoon and I hope really chilling. When you see two people look into each other's eyes the way they did over and over and over on June 18th, well, I'll just tell you, I had I didn't have any Kleenex with me, but someone behind me gave me some. <laughs> anyway, I am beyond thrilled to introduce our guest to you today, Dr. John Freer. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Windsor and the coordinator of the Educational Support Program at St. Clair College. John is involved in so much research. With We sparked a partnership between St. Clair College, the University of Windsor, Hotel Du Grace Healthcare, and Windsor Regional Hospital in Essex County. We're going to be talking about that research, the doctoral research, as well as a new partnership he has with Queen's University. And John's quote, I think we need to break down the stigma around disability, and it is his life's passion. Dr. Freer, I am so honored to have you uh, with us on our podcast today. Thanks for having me, Lynn. Appreciate it. All right. Would you like to me to refer to as Dr. Freer or just John? Not necessary. John is, John is perfectly fine. I shouldn't say just John, that minimizes it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, John and I have known each other for, oh gosh, well, quite a long time in a professional capacity and really gotten to know each other personally and professionally, I'd say over the last four years. So we're just going to have a general conversation today about um, disabilities, changing the lens, um, helping people reconsider the way that we think, the way we act, you know, lots of things we're going to be talking about today. But John, let's go back to where this all started for you. And I realize it wasn't a moment in time, maybe, but over a, a period of years. Why are you so passionate about supporting people with disabilities today? Well, I think like many people, for me, it started with a personal experience. Um, you know, I was a struggling learner in early elementary. You know, I was kind of at the lower, I still have a, a an EQAO result that my, my mom saves everything from my grade school and the EQA result shows average and then it shows where I was and I was below average. And, uh, you know, so when I was uh, a young, a young learner, I was struggling and I didn't understand why. And immediately I started to, you know, form beliefs about my own learning and um, as many students do. And it wasn't until the sixth grade where I received a diagnosis of epilepsy. And I realized that because I was having what were called absent seizures, then I was missing a lot of the lessons. And so there was these chunks of information missing all the time. And so there was, there was a neurological reason why I was struggling in school. But it wasn't until my adulthood, after I'd studied education and psychology, that I realized in addition to those neurological reasons why I was struggling, there was also all these psychological barriers that have been both constructed by other people, but also that I had constructed for myself. Um, and I, I believed that I was not a good learner. And I believed something fundamentally wrong about learning, which is that there can, there can be people that don't learn, which isn't true at all. It's a myth. Uh, and I thought I was one of those people. And so um, as I discovered that, I realized that there was a lot of problems with the way in which the school system was set up. And we were working, we're all working to make that better, but we still have a long way to go. Um, and part of it is the way in which disability is stereotyped in education and outside of education. And part of it is just uh, what we believe about student potential. And so that's kind of where my interest lies in terms of research and education. 
So if we go back now and, you know, just we have viewers and listeners from around the world. So I come from a background of special education, too. It's been my passion for many, many years. And we've done a lot of research. We're going to talk about all of your research, John, shortly into I'll talk about learning disabilities and and other types of things, because anyone who's out there who's struggling, you can learn. You can learn to, to reach your maximum potential if you can figure out what the barrier is, what's in the way, and find a workaround. And that's what we've been trying to do here in Southern Ontario for many, many years is you've got it. It's just let's just figure out what's 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 get keeping you stuck. And mm-hmm. educators out there are doing a wonderful job, much, much better than in, in the past, in trying to figure that out for our mm-hmm. students too. So so let's take people to a, a position today of, yes, we can do it, but let's let's figure out how. Yeah. And everybody has sort of their own, their own thing that, that makes them tick. Like finding that passion, I think is one of the primary purposes of education is to find what you're passionate about. And that we need to move past this idea that that's not always the thing that you have a talent in. And it's okay if you don't come to be good at something right away. Um, and it's about failing forward and, and mastery learning. Like we know these terminologies like mastery learning, but the extent to which we actually implement a fail-safe environment for students um, could, could certainly be improved, or at least could have been when I was in, in school. <laughs> what would a fail-safe environment look like in a classroom? So I think one of the biggest problems in, in our classrooms today is that we still have a model of education where there's someone at the front, and there's this implicit and explicit um, expectation that that person has all the answers. And to have the answers is correct, and to not have the answers is incorrect. And we we grade people, you know, and, and we put them on levels in Ontario. And, and, you know, some of those things are important for tracking progress, but it really should be more about that the, the progress, uh, the process focus rather than the product focus. And, um, you know, students are afraid to fail. Um, they think it says something about their character and their their intelligence and and these things. And and really, what we should be encouraging students is, if you failed, that means that you had the uh, the confidence to try, which is a prerequisite that for happens. anything. And and that's great. That's good. And if you failed, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a learning opportunity. So then, what did we learn from that failure? And how can we improve in the future? Combine that with you know working in the zone of proximal development, as we describe in education, which is simply the idea that students need to be in a place where they can reach for something that is obtainable. Um, So it's a teacher's job and a student's job and a parent's job to identify those opportunities. But if you take that all together, you can really provide a a space for students where they can experience success and experience confidence boosting, but not in some false, like build self-esteem kind of way, but in like this, which is important, but it's not really the point. Uh, It's more, you know, just, technically they're that's where their learning space is and they're 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 improving and so so that those things i think are really really important for setting up an environment for to be fail safe for lack of a better word and it's it's huge when you actually think about the systemic barriers in ontario for example we still have if you're a certain age you start at this grade level it's Mm -hmm. september it's september to june and then you move forward and and when when children have gaps those gaps are increasing especially in in things like math right and we have a language arts i'm just going to call it out here we have a language arts curriculum from 2014 here still in Ontario. So, I mean, come on, we're not moving with the times when it comes to that and that we can get into all the politics and everything that makes it more muddy, Um, right? And then we move into high school and we're taking four courses a day and, you know, all of those kinds of things now. But 
there have been some things that have really changed in the, I would say the last 10 years, John, that are awesome. Um, Ontario Youth Apprenticeship Program, one example. Specialist high school majors, which gives students when they're moving into grade 11 and 12 other options towards the world of work. Mm -hmm. Um, Volunteerism, all of those kinds of things to find a place where they can be successful, right? I'm just throwing those things out there because I want everyone, we're not saying we're stuck everyone, we're just saying we still have a a long way to go. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about our society needs more trades uh, people and people that have skills, uh, you know, actual skills so that we can have the things that we take for granted, like running water and lights that work. And, you know, um, those are really, really important jobs. And, um, uh, and, and sure, I mean, if that's something that a person finds a passion for, uh, that's a great example, an apprenticeship opportunity, again, with that right environment, students, students can learn, all students. Well, and so I'm going to flip it back to you now, because Mm -hmm. even though you had those challenges as a child, you are an academic. You're an adjunct professor at the University of Windsor. You're the coordinator of the educational support program at St. Clair College, and you are doing copious amounts of research in spite of those struggles as a child. So you are, oh my gosh, a role model for so many people, John. I hope you realize that. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been a journey, uh, but I do feel it's my obligation to now um, tell, tell people what I learned from my experience and hopefully ground that in some empirical data. Okay. And the educational support program, just so that we put a context in it for, for people who are listening from outside of Essex County is providing a program for educational assistance. We'll call it that, that word, although it's called different things in different places Hmm. to support people with needs. So it's all in one blanket. I want to jump over to we sparks on the work that's being done locally. It's really very, very unique with a whole partnership. Yeah, WeSpark Health Institute is a, um, a great new initiative in which they've developed a um, basically a, a, com- a community of researchers that are interested in doing health-related research. And um, they have grant opportunities for research uh, researchers sometimes that have applied for some bigger tri-council, CERC, and uh, CERC type of grants uh, through the federal government, maybe haven't been successful, then you can apply to these smaller grants, or they also have this thing called an igniting discovery grant, which is sort of a new research idea, something that needs to get sort of some kickstart funding or seed funding, if you will. And um, I was lucky enough to get a um, igniting discovery grant last uh, last year, I think it was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, time. yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's been extended because of COVID and, you know, the years are all blending together, of course, but um, but yeah, so so that research project basically was looking at attitudes towards disability, which is another interest of mine in terms of research. I would say that's probably the primary research program is anti-ableism education, disability studies and education, um, looking at how students develop preconceived notions about disability and what we can do as educators to um, expose them to more diverse understandings and more progressive understandings of disability and help to basically help to break down that invisible barrier. So, okay, we haven't talked about this in advance, but I this is this was a, a, a big bone of contention, I guess, for me when I was in my previous roles as an educator, as a principal, as a vice principal, as a superintendent, mm-hmm. is when we look at the definition of inclusiveness, right? right. Every board makes their own decision. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I mean, um, so I, I have very strong beliefs about inclusion. Um, I think it's a social justice issue fundamentally, and I think that all students should be together with their, with their peers, which... Um, I don't think is an unreasonable ask, but I do think that if it needs to be, uh, if it if it's if it's if it's to be successful, the way that we would achieve that perhaps would be to put funding into it and move the funding from special schools and special classrooms into the main classrooms, and then it's there for everyone, 
right? So that those supports then are not just for that student who happens to have gone through the process to be diagnosed with learning disability, but it's going to help students like me when I was in fifth grade and hadn't been diagnosed yet. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that is uh, something that I, I believe very strongly in um, as well. And I have to, I have to say it and Dan didn't hear because I was in a role that supported those um, partially and fully self-contained classrooms. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's definitely achievable. I think we'll see it in my career time. I'm a, I'm a new scholar in the field. I've got many years ahead of me. I think I'll, I think we're going to see Ontario move to a fully inclusive model. Um, but, you know, like many transitions we've seen since 1980, when Bill 82 was passed, which basically allowed students with disabilities to first come into uh, um, their, their neighborhood schools, which you know, that's only 42 years ago. Um, sad to say that. But, um, you know, I think we'll see it. And I think as long as the funding is there, it's going to make teachers better. It's going to make students with exceptionalities, educational experience and social experiences better. And I think it's going to make uh, the students in the classroom that don't have exceptionalities, their experience better too, because those supports will be available for everyone. They're also going to be exposed to different diversity um, uh, in terms of disability. And I think that's, that's ultimately going to make the microcosm that is our education a better society down the road. And one final note, and the funding has to include support for educators. Absolutely. And that will make a difference. All right. You, we mentioned people first language when you and I were having our pre-call. Our pre -call. And, mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you know, for decades, well, maybe a decade now, we've been saying we use people first language. And for so that means I'm going to say I am a person with autism as opposed to I'm an autistic person. But we do have some organizations and people who feel differently and want to be called or referred to in a certain way. So let's just talk about that openly and what, what's your advice for people? Yeah, well, I think that um, it, this is a very topical issue right now. Um, people are, are expressing their wishes. And I think, um, you know, we should operate out of a position of respect. If someone makes their wishes known, then we should, you know, I don't see a reason not to uh, oblige and, and refer to someone the way they want to be referred to. There is there is sort of a contention between person first language and uh, um, exceptionality first language. And this is something that we see worldwide. I mean, uh, in different parts of the world, they've been on um, exceptionality first language uh, for a long time. Here in North America, we've been on person first language for the last couple of decades. And there are generations of educators and people who have been taught that's the proper way to refer to a person with exceptionality. I, I think that we need to figure it out. Um, you know, it's important that we have a common language so that we can, we can get to the other, I mean, language is really important, but I think if, if we can agree on a language, then we can move on to some of the other barriers that need to be addressed. But, you know, there's an old mantra in disability rights uh, that's nothing about us without us. And so my default is to ask a person who has that lived experience what what and 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 but also recognizing that everyone is an individual and two people with the same exceptionality might have two very different experiences and two very different opinions. So I think it's um, just like anything, just treating people as individuals. Awesome. OK, nice way to, to explain it. It's time to take a short break. <laughs> When a child you know is feeling worried or scared, do they have the tools they need to make positive decisions? The Power of Thought Children's Book Series is what you've been looking for. The children on the planet Tezra cannot hide their emotions because they haven't learned how to control them yet. I Have Choices, the first book in the series, begins with a conflict that every child can relate to and teaches an evidence-based strategy that adults can model for everyday use. Children will learn in a fun way how to problem solve and find positive solutions to everyday situations. The Power of Thought Children's Book Series has been developed alongside clinicians, educators, and parents to use as a proactive resource in teaching children emotional literacy. We're Tazarenians who hover and live on a planet made of crystals. 
Join us and have some fun. You can become an alien too. Read this imaginary fun and practical book to your child, your grandchild, or to your students so they can start practicing the strategy of I have choices right away. Check it out at lynnmclaughlin.com under the books tab. <laughs> now let's get back to our guest. All right, I want to jump over now to your doctorate research. Mm-hmm. We got to talk research because that's what brings us forward, right? Absolutely. So, so for my doctoral dissertation, I was really interested in um, finding out what types of attitudes students have towards the concept of disability. And so there's been some validated metrics that I, um, that I used. And um, what I did was I measured students' attitudes towards disability. I then developed a 12-lesson intervention called the ABC Educational Program or the Tripartite Intervention, depending on the audience. And uh, what we did was we taught students all about diverse disability experiences um, through the lens of disability studies and education. And we um, measured students' attitudes before and after that experience. The first six lessons really focus on introducing students to what disability is and talking about all kinds of different disabilities. So it's not just a monolith. Um, And also talking about what inclusion means and how they can be um, inclusive ambassadors in their schools and in their community. Uh, And in the second set of lessons, we focus on disability in sports. And the reason why I wanted to focus on disability in sports is because I want students to be exposed to a strength-based perspective of disability. We, bring, we brought, uh, brought, brought in para-sport athletes, some of which were training for Paralympics, uh, and they were able to showcase their tremendous athletic ability, not contextualized with their disability, just flat out their amazing athletic ability as a human being. Um, and I think what happened is students start to look at disability um, and say, this person has a disability, but they are the most able person in this gym right now. And so what does disability and ability, what does that dichotomy even mean? And like, that's a really, it was a really authentic experience for students an experiential learning experience for them. Um, And so we did some qualitative data analysis to talk about the students' experiences with that. Um, And we also did some quantitative analysis where uh, we looked at um, uh, how attitudes shifted. Um, And what we did find in a small, modest uh, um, pilot study um, was that uh, students changed in a positive direction the way that they think about disability. Um, So the cognitive dimension of attitude, which is a really important starting place because before you can really feel uh, and challenge prejudicial feelings and even think about the cognitive dissonance one might have when engaging in what would be a discriminatory behavior, you first have to change how you actually think. Um, And so that I think was really, really important. And we're in the midst of replicating that right now. Our recent study, we had over 200 participants this time. So it's going to be a much larger study. I hope we're going to find some really robust findings and hopefully we can get these lessons out to teachers all over the world. Yeah, you just read my mind. Let's get that out there. (laughs) Okay, John, that is a great segue into talking about the book that you've been working on. And I know you're still going to be working on for quite some time, but I believe you're doing a compilation of research. Am I right? Yeah, so um, right now, my passion project off the side of my desk, maybe be out in a decade or so, I don't know, (laughs) um, is a book that I've tentatively titled The Illusion from the Back of the Class, Helping All Students Recognize Their Potential. And basically, this book is inspired from my own lived experience that we talked about already. And basically, everything that I learned about psychology and education that helped me um, traverse the what I call the illusory chasm. And I'll talk about what that means. Um, so basically, I believe that like we've all heard the proverbial back of the class students, right? And so I use that sort of analogy, if you will, to 
um, talk a little bit about how students see themselves in reference to the other students in their class. There's front of the classers and there's back of the classers kind of thing. And I don't actually fundamentally believe in that dichotomy, but I think it's a useful sort of colloquial way of sort of describing this issue. When I was a kid, I saw myself as a back of the classer and I saw other people who were doing well as front of the classers. And I fundamentally had a fixed mindset about that to draw from Carol Dweck's work. Um, and I thought that there were just people that were good at learning and there were people that were not good at learning. And I was in the latter group. Then, you know, I started finding my little successes and fail in little small pockets of fail safe environments like we were talking about earlier. Um, probably one of the most fundamental of which was um, public speaking contests. They struck fear into the hearts of kids during the 90s um, <laughs> all over the province. <laughs> and um, for whatever reason, I loved them. And I think and I know that's odd. I know it's odd. But um, the reason I loved them, I think, looking back on it is because it was a level playing field. Public speaking doesn't really come easy to anyone. Uh, and I knew if I worked really, really, really hard at it, then I could do really well at it. And I did well at it. Um, and so that, that flipped the switch for me at some point where I was, I just said, okay, well, if I work hard, I can see actual success. I can experience actual success. I mean, that was one of many experiences kind of like that. So basically um, in the book, what I, what I, what I start to talk about is, is that there's um, this illusory chasm that exists where people at the back of the class who are struggling, um, they develop a fixed mindset, their attribution of their successes and their failures um, are different than those who are succeeding. And they think that there's no way I could ever be like that student. They're, they think there's fundamental differences. And actually it's, a, it's an illusion. And I have um, this artist who's um, agreed to, let me put his art in the book, um, who does street art. And he has this beautiful street art where it looks like there's this huge drop off, but it's not. And if you look at it at a different angle, it's just flat and you can just walk across it. And what I've learned in, in my educational experiences is that because um, I studied psychology, disability studies, education, I started having a language and a, and a context for understanding why I had put these ideas in my mind, fixed mindset, attribution biases, um, uh, just, just social development stuff like industry versus inferiority. And I was feeling inferior because I was not doing well. And so that was that. So that whole uh, illusory chasm piece, it, it describes a phenomenon that I think many students experience um, where they just think that they can never be a student who learns. And it's such a myth and a problem in our society. And then after I described that in chapter one and chapter two, I talk about the, the, the greatest wasted human resource. And I think it's human potential. We have all these kids, all these people that live a whole life. I feel so blessed to have not, uh, to have figured that out for myself because I, I, I was able to then find my potential. But there's so many people that I've interacted with who tell me, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not very smart or I can't read good. Like I have a family member in my family that I mentioned to you before in our preliminary meetings that, you know, even to this day, they'll open a card. And if it has more than, you know, 20 words, they don't want to read it in front of people because at some point when they were a kid, someone told them they couldn't read good. And it's like, that person is brilliant and I respect them. And I think that they're, they're really bright, but they don't think they're bright. And I think that is a problem. I think there's a lot of people that don't ever um, find their potential. They don't ever find their passion because they're very busy believing a lie they were told by teachers, sometimes parents, unfortunately. And But most importantly, the voice that's most important is the one that you hear all the time as your own. And so, you know, that that's uh, that's something that I, I'm really passionate about. And in this book, I want to explore ways in which students and parents and teachers can support students to recognizing their own potential. Cause it's not about finding your potential. It's about recognizing it, it's already there. It's yeah. potential literally comes from the, from the, um, the words, um, what is within you? 
And educate means from comes from the word adduce, which means to bring out what is within. So it is literally a teacher's job to help them bring out their, their, their potential. And the mistake we make is we think that some students have more potential than others because they're they have a behavioral issue or they have a learning disability or they whatever or they have family issues going on, whatever it is. And that's that's a fundamental problem with the way in which um, uh, we approach learning. And I, I think that it needs to be addressed if we want to really make a big difference in society. Because you know what, like yeah. maybe that kid who didn't think they could read well would have been working on the cure to cancer. Like we just don't know wh what we're missing out on. Absolutely. Oh, I can't wait to read your book. I, you, I, I look forward to what action is going to be taken um, as a result of the Human Rights Commission's Right to Read report. That's mm -hmm. going to be huge. And, uh, you know, every behavior has a reason. And if every educator could actually use that as a, wow, okay, this child's telling me something and try to figure out what what's going on to cause that behavior, you might actually get to the root of the problem long before you ever would before. Every behavior has a purpose. And okay, we can go on and on and on, but you know that. And this is part of what we do at the Educational Support Program uh, at St. Clair College is helping our future uh, support workers understand um, really how to how to best take people to their full potential, which we'll, what we've been talking about this entire conversation, John. When I do when I do PD um, uh, with teachers with EAs, when I do pre-service training with teachers and EAs, when I work with I've done professional development with parents, uh, one of the first things I usually say when we talk about behavior is there's no there's no bad kids. There's bad behavior. There's um, bad situations. There's unfortunate um, circumstances. There's no bad kids. And and I think the same is true of learning. And that might be maybe more controversial, but I think that there are no students who can't learn. Uh, and it shouldn't be a controversial opinion, but I think I think it, unfortunately it is. I think that there's no student that can't learn. Students learn in different ways. They need different supports. And um, we it is our job to work with those students and support them. I mean, I always joke that the students who are really, really successful, they're probably going to be successful with almost any teacher. It's the students that you really earn your paycheck where you have to figure out a, a novel and innovative way to, to get through to them. And, um, you know, in the book, I talk a little bit about you might not see those changes right away. I remember I had a teacher in high school who used to hand back my work and say, you're capable of more. You're capable of more. He'd always write that on my papers. And I it was a high school. I didn't, eh, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't someone who could learn. That's what I believe. Um, so I didn't pay much attention to it. But when I finally found myself in university with imposter syndrome like crazy, because I was told my whole life I didn't belong there, I just kept telling myself, you're capable of more. And it was his voice telling me that. You know, so I don't think teachers realize how much power they actually hold. And so we talk about things like the Pygmalion effect in the book, where it's, you know, talking about a teacher's expectations and how those expectations actually turn into prophecies. Uh, we talk about self-fulfilling prophecies. There's a whole bunch of psychological things that are applicable, I think, to teachers, parents, and students. One individual person can have an effect on someone's life. Yeah. Their oh, whole yeah. life, right? Yeah. One statement, one moment in time. And, I, and I, boy, if we could just take a step back at the end of this conversation and have every single person reflect on that. So in addition to what you've described so far in your book, you're also doing more research in partnership with Queen's University, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm working with um, Dr. Ian Matson over at Queen's University, and we are just getting ready to do some research in the coming uh, months um, that's going to look at students with hidden disabilities. So for, for listeners that don't know what that is, those are disabilities that aren't overtly obvious, like learning disabilities are often hidden, ADHD. My, my um, absent seizures were, were very hidden. They were very hard to recognize, which is why I went misdiagnosed for so long. Um, and we want to understand, uh, we want to know more about the student's 
understanding of their disabilities and understanding of their learning. And so I, I feel like that research is going to help to really shape the book because it's going to help me understand um, if this experience that I had was a singular experience that's unique to me, or if this is a problem uh, where people are viewing their learning uh, in a deficit lens because of their exceptionality and their label and all of these things. Um, so we're going to really dive into that. And I'm really excited to do that work as well. So I, I think I could put forth a hypothesis that absolutely yours was not a unique experience. It's probably the more common experience. So we'll see the results, but uh, I, I, I think we're gonna be confirming that for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right about that. We always try to couch our expectations in research and look at it objectively. Uh, but, but yeah, I think um, you know, that's definitely part of the consideration as we move forward with the study. You know, and when we hear from individuals, when you sit down and actually talk to kids, when you talk to young adults about their experiences and you get that affirmation of what's worked and what hasn't worked, to me, that's that's the most powerful way to move us forward to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, anybody who has any questions, check out John's research. Where where can we find it? The best way to get a hold of me is just um, email me. Um, you can reach me at jfreer, J-F-R-E-E-R, at uwindsor.ca or at stclarecollege.ca. Those are uh, my two institutional emails. I have a Google Scholar page, so if people want to read the research, they can check it out there or on ResearchGate if you search me. It's fabulous. And if you're working in an organization where there's system systemic barriers, start to identify what those barriers are and then put in baby steps if you have to, action plans to make that change. It Absolutely. isn't going to happen overnight, but it is possible. Let's do it. Absolutely. And so like, I would just end, I guess, with by saying... Um, thank you very much, first of all, for having me on. It was really nice to, to be able to chat about these things. Um, but one thing I've just challenged listeners to think about is that disability is a is a diverse experience, not among groups, but within their group. And so we talked about that a little bit with person first language, expose children to that. They need to be exposed to the idea that everyone individually um, is unique and um, I think we'll be a lot better for it. You are brilliant. And I thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Lynn. Appreciate it. Now, if you're a mom like I am, even though my kids are adults and you are frustrated with asking your children to do the same thing over and over and over again, and you feel like you're talking to a brick wall, <laughs> you know, hang up your coat when you get home from school, just as one example. Please listen in to next week. Uh, we've got Tori Henderson joining us. She's the host of the podcast, Super Mom is Getting Tired, and she does life coaching for parents. And boy, does she have some concrete recommendations or pieces of guidance that I wish I had when my kids were young. Stay healthy and safe and celebrate everything that you have in your lives today. Thanks for tuning in and posting your review of Taking the Helm on your favorite platform. We'll give you a shout out in a future episode. To be inspired by people who are steering us in the right direction, go to lynnmclaughlin.com where you can search previous guests by the topic of your choice. And while you're there, download Lynn's gift. There's more than one way to get through a crisis.